0: sermon passage this morning comes from Romans 9, 1-29. This is God's word. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit, that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. In order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of his call. She was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God, who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, Why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man? to answer back to God. Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honored use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Even us, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles? As indeed he says in Hosea, Those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, You are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Thanks, Mark. That was a long one. Let's pray.
1: Father, just uh, thank you for your word. We thank you for um, the power that it contains. And a lot of the mysteries that it contains as well. So be with us now as we, as we look at your word and as we unpack uh, this large passage. May you uh, not only help us to, to, to glean uh, its understanding, um, but also to see how it applies uh, to every area of our lives. So we pray for your presence. In Christ's name, amen. So uh, I did a bit of traveling this week, and uh, I did it uh, mostly with driving, so I relied uh, a lot on my GPS. I don't know if uh, you've gotten used to relying on GPSs when I grew up. Uh, of course, we used maps, and, if, and now we use uh, the GPS. Uh, but if you remember when the, when the GPS first came out, uh, they were a, a little bit tough to manage, um, the new ones are remarkable, and I was reminded of that this weekend, where they start warning you about two miles out of a turn that you have to make, and then they warn you every half mile and then every couple of hundred meters. So if you make a mistake, you really have to try hard to make a mistake with a new uh, GPS but the old ones were not always as easy to manage. And I can remember more than once having to make some pretty hard right and left turns because they told me at the very last minute. I think my, my wife would confirm this. We even one time, I think we put the van in a ditch once because we made uh, such a hard right turn. Well, in Romans chapter 8, we've read about this magnificent passage Uh, that talks all about adoption and the love that we have in Jesus Christ. And it beautifully paints us a picture uh, of an adopting love that will never let us go. And then you get to Romans chapter 9, and it feels like a hard right turn. And you kind of wonder what Paul is doing here. But what you quickly realize is in Romans chapter 9, chapter 10, and 11... Paul is dealing with something intensely. He's dealing with a struggle that had emerged in the church that he was writing to, and he was also really articulating a personal struggle that he was wrestling with. And both of those struggles, the church struggle and the personal struggle, all boil down to one question. And that question is who are God's chosen? Or, or better said, who are God's people? And the context really tells us why this was an important question. We alluded to the fact that there was a, a church struggle that was going on. There was something happening within the Roman Church that prompted this discussion. You see, a, a large part of, or a large majority of Jesus's first followers. Uh, were of Jewish ethnicity, Jesus himself, of course, was Jewish. He spent uh, the majority of his time and ministry within a Jewish context. His closest disciples were Jewish, so almost all of the initial steps of this Jesus movement were within the context of Judaism, the religion of Judaism, and, and the ethnicity of Judaism. And and this Roman church was most likely populated by Jews that had converted to Christ or were followers of Jesus Christ. But then as Paul began to minister, things started to change a little bit. And even the makeup of this Roman church began to change a little bit because Paul was preaching the gospel to people who were not Jews. Of course, he preached to the Jews, but he also preached to those that were not. And the gospel began to spread to non-Jews, to Gentiles. And what eventually happened is that these Gentiles were now starting to show up at church. And, and we all love the idea of church being a welcoming and open place until our enemies start showing up. Until the people that we loathe or dislike start to show up. And that's exactly what was happening here. You see, the Jews had felt a certain superiority to all other ethnic groups. And in some ways, they had a good theological reason for believing that. Because they believed that they uniquely were chosen by God. And they had a lot of good reasons for believing that they were chosen by God. They had a very long and and beautiful history with God. Their story began in, in Genesis chapter 12 when God comes to Abram and tells him that he would be the father of a great nation. That God's special favor would be on Abraham and his descendants. And God continued to to prove that special favor throughout their history. He took this family and he grew them into a great nation. Later on in their history, he frees them from their enslavement to the Egyptian people. He miraculously carries them into a promised land and clears the land of all of their enemies. He gives them their precious law. He gives them covenants, promises of his special favor. He gives them a great king, King David, and he comes to King David and promises him that he will have a descendant on the throne for all of eternity. And what we believe is that Jesus Christ was that descendant. Jesus Christ, a Jew who would take that throne forever and would liberate the entire world from their spiritual enslavement. So the Jews had this this very long and beautiful history, this relationship with God, and that led them to believe that they were God's chosen people. They would concede that, sure, God loves all other people but they still believed that they were the favorites. They had that special relationship. I can remember growing up, I had, I, was in, I had three kids in my family, and I would often go to my parents and say, sure, I know you love all of us equally, wink, wink, but we all know who the favorite is. And that in some ways is what exactly was going on with the Jews here. And all of these Gentiles now began to start showing up at church. And they began to ask, you mean to tell me, Paul, that God's grace means the same for them as it does for us? How could that be? After all, aren't we your chosen people? Aren't we your favorites? So that was the the church struggle that was behind this passage, but there was also a a personal struggle that Paul himself was feeling. He says it in in, in verse 2 there. He says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. You see, Paul is heartbroken over all of this. His heart is broken over the fact that his own people, the Jewish nation, has largely rejected Jesus Christ as their Savior. He says to his own people, he says, Don't you see that all of those covenants... That 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 we had pointed to Jesus Christ himself. Don't you see that all of the patriarchs, our fathers, they were all foreshadows of the one and true Savior in Jesus Christ. Don't you see that all the promises, all the laws, all the special favor, all of them have their climax in Jesus Christ himself. See, Paul was brokenhearted because of all people out there, the Jews should be the first ones lining up to follow Jesus Christ. But instead, by and large, all of them had rejected Jesus and who he claimed to be. And so Paul answers this question, who are God's chosen then? Who are the ones that receive special favor from God? And his answer throughout is that God's people are those whom God has chosen in his foreknowledge and in his plan to be special recipients of God's special grace. They are not a physical people or an ethnic people, but they are a spiritual people. And Paul then argues that this actually is nothing new. This isn't some sort of novelty. This is always the way this has been. There is no inconsistency with God. And so Paul presents that truth. And then what he does is he starts to work through several objections that he anticipates his audience to automatically have to what he is teaching them. The first objection he tackles in verses 6 to 13 And that objection is, or the question is, is this new Gentile thing God's plan B? Or is this all about God failing in his love for the Jewish people and instead changing things to now include the Gentiles? And Paul's answer to this is absolutely not, because God's word never fails, God's plans can never be thwarted. This has always been God's plan and God's MO. You see, regardless of their physical ethnicity or racial makeup, God's people are those whom he chooses to be special recipients of his grace. Verse 8 says this, This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, But the children of the promise are counted as offspring. See, what he's saying is, if you've received the promises of God, then you are one of God's own. You are one of his children. He then uses an example from the Old Testament from from Jacob and Esau. And if you've ever read the story before, uh, Jacob and Esau were were twin boys that were born uh, to Isaac and Rebekah. You can read about them in Genesis chapter 25. And, And both of these sons, both Jacob and Esau, were ethnically Jewish. But what the passage tells us is that God chose Jacob to be the one to pour out his special favor on And he chose to reject Esau. It wasn't that Jacob was in any way better than Esau. In fact, the passage even tells us that the decision was made before both of them were born. But what Paul is arguing is that even though they were both ethnically Jewish, Jacob was adopted as God's chosen and Esau was passed by. And what the story reminds us is that the God's people are ultimately chosen by him. He chooses some people to be his people and others are passed by. And it has nothing to do with ethnicity or race. It is not bound by Jew or Gentile. It even has nothing to do with personal effort or moral integrity. Paul says that in verse 16. It depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So effectively what Paul is saying is it is all about God's grace from the very start to the very finish. The next objection he outlines in verses 14 to 18, and it often is how we feel about this too. Doesn't that seem unfair? Can we charge God with unfairness because he chooses some to be recipients of grace and others not so much? Look at verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on on whom I have compassion You see, as creatures of God who are are broken and marred by sin, in many ways Paul is saying we are in no place whatsoever to lecture God on fairness. Because in fairness, all of us, every single one of us, deserves to be the objects of God's wrath. None of us deserve to be objects of God's compassion and mercy. In fact, the miracle is that any of us at all are chosen to be a part of God's special grace. The miracle is that God has chosen any of us to be destined for glory. Shakespeare, surprisingly enough, in The Merchant of Venice, wrote these words, Though justice be thy plea, consider this, that in the course of justice, none of us should salvation see. Finally, Paul tackles one more objection in verses 19 to 29, and the objection goes like this. If all of this is up to God's choice, then how can he ever find fault with us? Now, what's interesting is Paul brings up this objection But you can tell that he is immediately uncomfortable with even raising the objection. Because what he's saying is that we are peering into the mysterious absolutes of God. There are absolutes that we can know and that we should embrace by faith. But there are so many mysteries that we cannot know and may never know. We cannot put ourselves in the judgment seat and put God on trial because after all, we are the creation and he is the creator. We are the clay and he is the potter. At the end of the day, we don't know why God chooses some to be objects of his grace and why he chooses some to be objects of dishonor. And so what should our response be to a passage that is like this? These 29 verses of intense kind of theological wrestling. What should our response be to things like this where we don't fully know all the answers but we can know some things? How should we walk away from a passage like this? Well, the first thing we should walk away with is this. We ought to trust God in the mystery. We ought to trust God in the mystery. Anne Lamont, um, who is a a well-known writer, um, wrote this once, which I've loved this quote. I've probably used it before. You can safely assume that you've created God in your own image when it turns out that God hates all the same people that you do. And I would add that you can safely assume that you've created God in your own image when he acts according to your finite sense of justice. You see, much of popular Christianity has turned God into our buddy. And in fact, he is our buddy and he is our friend. He sticks closer to us than a friend. But most of popular Christianity presents a God who is simply there to cheer us on to affirm our sensibilities and to comfort us when we are down but friends the God of the Bible is so much more than just that he is the mighty creator and we are his simple creation and his main objective is not always making you and I feel comfortable instead he calls us to trust in his goodness. And to trust him in the mystery. And friends, I think after all, we really don't want a God who looks just like us. We want a God who is bigger and mightier. A God who we cannot fully figure out. So we are called to trust God with the mystery. I think the second thing it ought to to do in us is it ought to cause us to cherish gratitude. You see, when God passes by someone, he isn't forcing on them something they don't already want. Because the Bible tells us that in our sinfulness, we all want rebellion. We don't want God. We want our own independence. And so God gives us what we ultimately want, an existence without him. Leon Morris said this, Neither here nor anywhere else is God said to harden anyone who had not first hardened themselves. You see, what is remarkable about all this is when God actually steps in and interrupts our self-will. When he steps in and opens our eyes to the foolishness of the way that we've been living. He doesn't do it because we're better or worse than the next guy. It doesn't depend on our works, our human will, or our exertion. Thank goodness. But in his grace, he chooses some to be recipients of his blessing and glory, to be recipients of his adoption. And if that is you, friends, that should fill your life with gratitude. Gratitude for what he has done on your behalf. He gave his own life executed as a common criminal so that you could be an object of his great compassion. We ought to cherish gratitude. And finally, I think the last response we ought to have is we ought to engage in worship. Paul finishes this this kind of parenthetical section in in Romans, chapters 9, 10, and 11, with these remarkable words in chapter 11 that say this, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways! For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. You see, when Paul thought about these things, he was overcome with worship. And that should be our response as well. Let's pray.